The day-to-day, it actually looks pretty similar to my time as a postdoc or even later on in grad school. So they're all research-focused careers. And so I'm leading projects and developing projects, research projects at various stages. So basically just running them end-to-end. I think one of the big differences between my current role and my academic work is there's just a lot more collaboration with different people who are involved in a project. So whereas before, it may have just been me and my advisor. I'm working with prototypers. I'm working with engineers. I'm working with product managers. I'm talking to all of these different people. Welcome to the 68th episode of the Struggling Scientist podcast. We are a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anybody science adjacent, and perhaps even hobbyist. My name is Susanna, and I'm here with my co-host, Jeroen. Hi. For most academics, a career inside of academia is all they know. But more and more people are considering a career outside of academia. But what does that look like and how do you get one? Today we're talking with our special guest Ashley Ruba, who 18 months ago quit her postdoctoral fellowship to pursue a career outside of academia. And in her own words, I have more time, more money and more fulfillment compared to my academic career. Since leaving academia, Ashley has, be- has also begun sharing her story and coaching other academics on how to make the switch to a non-academic job and we can't wait to hear more about her story and tips. So let's start. Welcome, Ashley. It's so nice thank to have you on our podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes. So we've been following you for a while now on social media and where you've been helping a lot of people, obviously. And we thought you would be a, the perfect expert on, on this topic that uh, we want to cover today. But before we get started on talking about non-academic careers, we would actually love to know a little bit more about you. Could you maybe introduce yourself to our listeners? Who are you and what is your scientific background? And probably the most important question ever, uh, do you have any interesting hobbies you'd like to tell us about? <laughs> I've also been following y'all on social media for a while, so this is, this is great. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm Ashley and I'm currently a human factors engineer at Arthrex. And Arthrex is a medical device company that makes medical devices for orthopedic surgery. And it's very different than my scientific background for the prior 10 years. And so I got my PhD in developmental psychology from the University of Washington. And going through my PhD, I really wanted to be a faculty member. And I built this research program around early childhood emotional development. I was really studying how babies learn to understand other people's emotions and babies and still think babies are fascinating and just really wanted to understand how humans learn so much so quickly in the first two years of life. And as I went through my PhD program, I started learning more about what an academic career actually entailed. I wasn't quite sure I was good enough to be a professor, but I ended up applying for and getting a prestigious NIH postdoctoral fellowship and so I took it to keep pursuing an academic career, and this was right before COVID happened. So I had moved across the country again, started this postdoc, and then all of a sudden I was in my third year, didn't have any faculty jobs lined up, and was just feeling kind of done <laughs> for a variety of reasons. And so yeah, I transitioned out of academic research into UX, and I'm here now. And in terms of interesting hobbies... Um, When I was in graduate school, I did yoga teacher training and became a certified yoga teacher and actually as additional income during my PhD program taught uh, yoga at a cat cafe for two years. Um, That's an original uh, one. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which is is fun. Um, And and then I guess my other other current interesting hobby is I really like 
techno and I really like going out and dancing to techno. And that's also something that I started doing when I was in, in graduate school. And yeah, there's just, it was a really, it was a really nice way to just kind of get out, get out of like the academic space and do something like move my body and do something fun. Hmm. Those sounds like very different mindsets and moods uh, happening at the same time in terms of yoga, very calming, I imagine, but oh, also sure. techno, very, very sped up, very high energy. Yeah, definitely. So you were in academia for quite a while, uh, except for COVID. Were there mm-hmm. other things that, that um, inspired you to switch careers to a non-academic job? Yeah, there were... There were a couple of different things. I, When I was a graduate student, I actually sat on a faculty search committee. And so I saw the process from the other side and I saw a hundred, I think we had like 120 applicants applying for this one faculty position in developmental psychology. And I saw the process of how we took the stack of very qualified people and whittled it down to three people we wanted to invite out for interviews. And I just sat there watching people get cut who had CVs that were much better than mine. And I just thought, there's no there's no way there's no way that I'm good enough for this um but then when I got this fellowship I thought okay maybe 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 that's not true maybe I just am being really hard on myself but I think I I just started to see how how like even if I was on the tenure track I didn't think my mental health was going to improve and I struggled with my mental health for a while and an academic career just the pressure it was really kind of cranking up the volume on the anxiety and the depression symptoms that I'd already experienced for a really long time. I was also um, experienced some bullying by a couple of tenured faculty members in my department. There were there were a couple other things. I was just and I and then I saw a friend who had started his dream faculty job, and I saw how stressed he was, even still, even though he had gotten this faculty job that he had really wanted. And then it was just on to the next thing. It was just worrying about getting tenure, and I just didn't see how that would be any different for me. I just wanted a career that wasn't as stressful, ultimately. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So it does seem like you're doing much better now than what you would just describe. So it sounds like you're happy with leaving academia. What has your career looked like since leaving academia? And what have you noticed are some of the biggest differences since since leaving it? Yeah, so I've actually had three different non-academic jobs um, in the past 18 months. So I started off at, as a UX researcher at a small consulting company. It was an entry-level position, learned a ton um, while I was there. And then after three months, I was really starting to feel that it really was an entry-level position. And in, in my view, I kind of grown out of it. I was doing a lot of data collection, wasn't really leading projects, wasn't clear when I was going to be able to lead projects. So I ended up applying for a contract UX position at Meta and I got it. And so I started working at Meta Reality Labs probably like six weeks before the the first round of layoffs hit the company. Mm -hmm. And so I was never laid off. But during the year I was there, I went through three different rounds of layoffs, saw other people I worked with laid off. And that was just a really stressful experience to go through. And so I, at that point, was looking for a company that had a little more stability. And then I actually found my current job um, in part from posting on LinkedIn. I had posted about the layoffs, posted about how I was, you know, not really sure if Meta was going to be a place I wanted to stay long term. And my current manager commented on my post and was saying that, you know, a smaller company, like 
could be better and more stable. And I was like, yeah, sounds great. And then he was like, yeah, I'm hiring. And then I just slid right into his DMs and, <laughs> and here we are. So, um, cause I never, I never heard of Arthrex before. I never heard of this company. never thought I'd be working in like medical devices or anything like that. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of like where my career has taken me so far. And so now I'm a human factors engineer, which is human factors engineering is kind of under the umbrella of UX research, but it is a much more regulated industry because we are making devices that go into people. So obviously there's a lot more safety concerns than if you're just making a like augmented reality headset that you're wearing. Mm. Okay. Uh, what does your day-to-day look like now? What, what should I imagine with this job? Yeah, so day to day, it actually looks pretty similar to my time as a postdoc or even later on in grad school. So they're all research focused careers. And so I'm leading projects and developing projects, research projects at various stages. So basically just running them end to end. So right now I'm in the process of designing my the first studies that I'm going to be doing, but then I'll also be doing data collection and then analyzing the data, writing reports and presenting back to teams. I think one of the big differences between my current role and my academic work is there's just a lot more collaboration with different people who are involved in a project. So whereas before it may have just been me and my advisor, Mm -hmm. I'm working with prototypers, I'm working with engineers, I'm working with product managers, I'm talking to all of these different people. And and now, now that I'm in orthopedic research, I'm also talking to surgeons and people who actually specialize in orthopedic research to figure out how are we going to design the study? What are the questions that are important to test? And so I actually have like a bunch of meetings um, today and next week in designing this first study to talk to everyone and figure out what we're going to do. Um, but yeah, day to day, it's just it's just research um, and meetings and talking with people and working, working with various teams. Oh, sounds interesting. So for all our listeners who are still struggling their way through academia, we have something that could help, namely our sponsor, Astound Research. Astound Research is an AI tool that helps researchers find funding opportunities based on their resume. The AI scout monitors hundreds of funding providers in the U.S., such as private foundations, nonprofit organizations, and corporations, all the grants you would normally miss. It's fast, easy to use, and affordable. All you need to get started is to simply create your profile by uploading your scientific resume and you will get notified anytime there's a new funding opportunity for you. Let's face it, finding funding will never be fun, but it can be a lot easier with the help of Astound. You can start finding new funding opportunities now with the link thestrugglingscientist.com slash astound. And we got you 25% discount with the code strugglingscientist. I think academics face multiple challenges when making the switch to uh, to a non-academic job. Uh, can you elaborate on what struggles you came across when applying for jobs and how did you overcome them? Yeah, so I think when I was applying for jobs, it was January 2022. And I think at that point there was still, and I guess there still is, but at, at that point there was, it really felt like there was a lot of stigma just around going into a non-academic career. I didn't really know that many people who had done it. It didn't feel like there were a ton of resources out there for me to use. Um, Beyond the Professoriate was one resource that I had heard of, and so I went to a couple of their webinars and kind of just like from that piece together what I needed to do in order to use LinkedIn and make a resume and all of that, but it just felt 
it was a very isolating experience. Um, my advisors weren't really able to help me at all. If anything, they mildly discouraged me from doing this. And they were asking me like, oh, are you sure? Like, if you leave, you can't come back. Um, I'm like, no, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so not really much help, felt really much on my own. Um, and so, yeah. And honestly, that's a big reason why I started posting about it because I just didn't, I didn't really know anyone who was doing this at all. Um, so that was the biggest struggle. I actually landed my first non-academic job fairly quickly within the first two months of applying because I think I had, again, found an entry-level position and was able to learn enough about UX to get through my interviews and convince people that I had a really strong research background, even though I didn't have UX experience specifically. Um, but I think it was the loneliness and just the loss of my academic identity that was the hardest for me because I had spent over 10 years building this research program and I just felt like I'm did I just waste 10 years of my life like what am I doing and I think that that was harder for me for sure and for your job searches later on how did you how did you handle those um, yeah, so my job search, so I only after, after that first round of applying, mm. I've only ever applied to two more jobs and I caught both of them. Um, I think at that point I understood how to talk about my research and my skills in a way that made sense to other people for the job that I got at Meta. I applied through a recruiter, um, and going through that interview process, I think I had, I had learned enough about UX research. I had three months of experience at that point to where, and I tell PhDs this all the time, like really good, you're expert learners, like you can learn really quickly. And I was able to kind of communicate my expertise in interviews. And then with this, the current job that I have now, and like I mentioned before, but the hiring manager found, found me on LinkedIn. And then it was also just a process of going through the interviews and just really convincing people, like, I may not have the exact experience that you were looking for in the job ad, but I can learn really quickly and I can go into this role and um, getting to the interview stage is one problem entirely. And that's the problem I see most PhDs facing, but then getting through the interview process is a whole nother thing. Um, and I think fortunately, I, I think I interviewed pretty well. So then getting to the, inter once I get to the interview process, I've, I've always like managed to get to the end. Oh, well, nice. Um, so you now mentioned also your own personal struggles with uh, finding a non-academic uh, career or transitioning to a non-academic mm -hmm. career, but also how other people reacted to you wanting to make that transition. What misconceptions do you find academics have about non-academic careers and how do you try to address these misconceptions that they have? Oh, there's so many misconceptions <laughs> about non-academic careers and ones that I really believed for a really long time. And I actually thought about leaving academia in my last year of my PhD program, and I didn't because I believed all these misconceptions. I think there's this misconception um, that there's not, it's not intellectually fulfilling in a non-academic career, that academia is the only place where you can just have complete intellectual freedom, where there's all this flexibility that you have in your job. And in some ways, it's a morally superior career because you're not working in product development in particular. I think UX research gets a very negative reputation because of that. Um, so when I when I joined Meta and was talking about this on Twitter, like that's that's when people like really started coming after me um, mm -hmm. for for that particular job change. But 
But like what I found is like I've been able to work remotely in every single job that I've had, which is very flexible because I can live wherever I want, which you can't do if you're pursuing an academic job. I find that I work a lot less than I did in academia. And at the end of the day and on the weekends, which I, I never really work nights or weekends in academia, but I'm just, I'm not thinking about work all the time like I was before. There's not this, it's not so intensely tied to my personal identity. I'm not constantly worried about whether I'm doing enough. And I find that there's also just a lot more praise for my work and my efforts outside of academia. And there's not as much criticism. There's really not any criticism at all over my over my work at all. Like everyone's very appreciative for what I do. Um, and when I was in academia, I just felt like nothing I ever did was good enough, even though you can look at my CV and I did a lot and I still, mm-hmm. it just never felt like enough. Um, so, and, and I also find a lot of intellectual fulfillment in my, in my jobs, uh, which I didn't expect because I thought I'm only going, the only thing that's ever going to interest me is like early childhood emotional development. And looking back, that's just kind of a, a weird thing that I thought because I never really tried to do anything else. So how mm. could I have known? Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so those were the things academics are getting wrong about non-academic careers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is there anything that they are correct about or is the grass just always greener outside of academia? I I have met very few people who regret leaving academia. I think if anything, people wish they would have done it sooner. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of, I think... Things that people could probably find challenging and something I've heard a lot from professors is this idea that they really don't want a boss telling them what to do. And so like that is true, like in a non-academic job, I am working with other people. And so I can't just unilaterally decide like we're going to do it this way and this is how like I want to do it and just kind of like push through what everyone else wants to do. Um, so so if you are like not good in working with teams like that, then perhaps working outside of academia isn't going to be a great fit. Um, but but these are comments, every comment I've heard about non-academic jobs has almost always come from faculty who have never actually held a non-academic job themselves. So they don't really know what it's like. Um, and that's really the only, that's really the only thing that I can think of that people have maybe like, gotten correct um that and in most cases you probably will not be able to study the exact same thing that you are studying in academia so Mm. in terms of studying infant emotion perception development like there's not really a place i can think of where i would be able to do that i could study some like similar questions of like maybe early childhood like emotional development but in terms of like that specific research question like it is true. I would not be able to study that outside of academia. So that is another thing that is accurate. But I would challenge that in most cases, people are interested in far more things than just one very specific subject. True. Mm. And oftentimes you also have to adapt your academic research wishes to what you can actually get grants for. So, Oh, yeah, exactly. And, that, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you, can, you can study anything that's grant funded <laughs> like yes, you can study anything um, yeah there are some caveats attached to yes. <laughs> now uh you've also talked a lot about to other academics wanting to leave academia on especially on social media 
what do you think is the main thing still holding a lot of them back? Because you also mentioned already in your PhD that you were thinking about leaving. Um, but what do you think uh, is holding a lot of other people back? Yeah, so I actually, I, I talked to a lot of professors, which really surprises mm -hmm. me. Like, and professors who have tenure and are thinking about leaving and they're messaging me and they're just like, I have no idea what to do. I'm like, but you're, you're a tenured faculty. And like these tenured faculty even believe that they have no value outside of academia. And that's just like baffling to me. Um, and, but I think like academia has convinced people of this, like, oh, we have highly specialized training and it's just, it's only good for an academic career. Like it's like no company would want to hire me at all. And I think especially humanities PhDs like really struggle with this a lot. So people, you know, who have a PhD in history who are studying like a particular, a particular moment in history where there's like, who, who is going to want to hire me like to study this thing. And I think, the hard, the hard like mental switch is separating yourself from the thing that you've studied and focusing more on you actually have all of these really powerful and marketable skills. And like that is what people are hiring for. They're not hiring you for your subject matter expertise. If people didn't hire me because I studied babies, they hired me because I understand how to conduct research mm -hmm. and I understand how to write and I understand how to communicate research. Um, so I think I think that's the thing that's holding people back is this idea that they they just don't know what's out there and they don't know how to get there. And so it's just, it's just much easier to stay where they're at than to try to like completely do something different, especially when universities really have no professional development support for anyone trying to do this. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's like a big activation barrier um, making this transition at all. Many academics worry that leaving academia will devalue all the work they have put in. Uh, what advice do you have for those who struggle with this perception? Yeah, so I definitely, definitely felt this way, um, especially, especially because I, when I decided to leave, I had re I'd spent I think seventy hours revising and resubmitting like a five-year federal grant that I ended up mm -hmm. withdrawing, and so I was like, well, I just wasted like months of my life doing this mm -hmm. and I was looking at all of my research plans in the future and I'm like no one's going to do this like everything I did was for nothing and I think what what helped me is just appreciating that you know in the in the 10 years that I was in academia like I did do something like I did move the needle a little bit in my specific area and hopefully one day someone or some people in the future will pick up where I left off and like keep going with that research area it's just not going to be me um, so that, that like helps me at the end of the day, like I did publish and my research did run awards and it was, it was impactful a little bit to the field, I hope. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what helped me. I actually have sort of a, I don't know if it's really related question, but have you ever heard of someone who's like left academia, went to industry, but then went back to academia? I've heard of a couple of people who have mm. done that um but it's not very common i mm. feel like once people leave they generally are like don't want to go You're back <laughs> and that's how that's how i feel like if someone offered me like a tenured faculty position job right now i'd be like no sorry mm. <laughs> like mm. i just i don't really have any interest in doing that anymore yeah, I was just thinking because you mentioned when you looked at like those 120 sort of applicants that were mm -hmm. applying for that that uh, tenure position or that position, 
uh were any of them sort of also no that's not really common no, i guess then, no um, and even like there was one person where um I th- like her commitment to academia was questioned because she had left the United States and had gotten a faculty job somewhere else. And so there were questions about whether she was actually like really committed and like capable mm-hmm. of working at an R1 in the United States. So it was, I could imagine it would even be worse for someone who had mm-hmm. like left academia and then was trying to come back, like questions about like, where are you really, are you really committed to this career or not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, wow. <laughs> I never would have guessed that. Like, I, I've I, indeed, uh, similar to you, I guess, uh, I've only heard of a few people who have left and come back, I guess. But it's really not that common. And I, in, no. in many ways, I try to imagine that it could be beneficial. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think I think it could definitely be beneficial. Um, and I would I really wish there was more collaborations between mm. academia and like industry and like companies and just and at all um but Mm. there's really not we are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor jenny ai not only does jenny make our podcast possible it also makes our life as scientists so much easier jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in other ai tools yes first off unlike other ai tools it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph, completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers. Just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot dot dot, and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. Okay. Um, So when people decide to actually leave academia and start applying for non-academic jobs, it also seems like they struggle with that, with the application process. What do you think is the main thing or several things that they, they might be doing wrong when applying? Oh, there's a lot of things. (laughs) And it's always, it's always the same things. Like every time I talk to someone, it's, it's always the same things. Um, I think one thing is that people don't understand how to use LinkedIn. Um, And so they, like when I look at people's LinkedIn profiles, like it's not really clear. They haven't really filled them out. They haven't built their networks at all. Um, And so that, that's a, that's a big thing. And just really understand that LinkedIn is like it's a very powerful extension of your resume and like learning how to use it is really important to finding a job and can really help you. Um, another thing I see is PhDs applying for everything, basically, uh, like anything they might be, quali- they might think they're qualified for. And my advice is always to just pick one career path because it's really hard to apply to UX research positions and market research and data science and program managers, like these are all very different careers, very different skills, very like different different kinds of projects that are being done. And it's just hard. 
to learn about all of these fields at once and brand yourself for all these fields at once. And so it's a lot more efficient if you just target one of them. Um, and then going back to the Lincoln thing, just not understanding like the power of networking and the necessary and just like how necessary it is to finding a job. So I see PhDs who the only thing they've been doing is just submitting their resumes to places like they haven't been talking with people because they don't understand. They don't understand how to network. They I've talked to so many people who are like, well, I don't really have anything of value to like, why would anyone want to talk to me? And so it's like a lot of like limiting beliefs and imposter syndrome that prevent people from just you know, messaging, like messaging people and being like, Hey, like I'm a PhD. I'm interested in like transitioning into this field. Like wondering if you just had like 15 minutes to chat and like people, people aren't necessarily doing this or understanding how to do it. Um, and then, and then separate from all of that is just understanding how to write a resume and how it's, it is not a CV. Um, so I see a lot of resumes that could definitely, definitely use some help, but I feel like the the networking the linkedin and all of this stuff like that's that's ultimately like the bigger problem because i also my resumes in the past i wouldn't say were were great especially for the job i just applied for um but because i had networked it didn't matter so much um mm. because i had someone who really wanted to hire me uh maybe to follow up on that a little bit so the networking i often get the feeling that people uh when they think about networking it's more like they always feel like I should have started networking much sooner during my PhD already. Mm -hmm. But so it's, it's still possible to in your last year or in the last months to still network uh, on LinkedIn and to try and get a job. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the best time to network is right now. <laughs> the best time to get on LinkedIn is right now. If you're not, um, it's when at the time when you are like, I need a job and you're applying for jobs, like it's not too late, but I had connected with the hiring manager for my current job months prior to when he was actually hiring. So he knew about me to then when I said like, Hey, I might be looking for a job. Like he already knew who I was and he was already interested in what I was able to do. And so that's why he reached out to me. So, so yeah, so you're right. Like it's not, it's definitely like not too late at all. Um, but you should definitely start like now and continue to do it like throughout your career. Like I have a job now, but I'm still, always networking on LinkedIn. Um, and I will continue to do that even though, even though like I'm not currently looking for a job. But when you network right now on LinkedIn, do you just make connections with the people that you think are interesting or do you actually also go out and talk to them? Um, yeah, it's, it's like a little bit of both. Um, I mean, as someone who like creates content on LinkedIn and is gaining like a lot of like, mm. um, I mean, I'm, I'm probably gaining like a, at least a hundred followers every day on LinkedIn. Talk so to all of them. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did, yeah. Um, so, and so people are sending me connection requests all the time. And so when I'm like looking through those connection requests, like I'm like looking at people's profiles and seeing like, you know, who, who is this? And if, um, and when I'm accepting the connection requests, I'll like some people message me like, Hey, like, thanks for the request. Like what you're doing is really cool. Like I've gotten some like like connection requests from like really like really big people like in my field they've also just like reached out to various like I sent a couple of connection requests to people yesterday who were more in the mental health space and was like hey I like really love your content like and just you know just like starting a conversation um I'm ne like I said I'm, I'm never asking for a job in these conversations I'm just like mm. connecting with people and like 
And I, and I think that's also what people get wrong about networking is you're not messaging people and immediately asking for like, oh, can you read my resume or can you give me a job or anything like that? It's more like making a new professional friend. So being able to find a common interest or just that's what most of what I tell people is like, hey, I really like your content. Like, that's really cool. Or like, oh, your job sounds really cool. Like, can you tell me more about it? Um, and just just like learning about other people and what they're doing and yeah, that's that's all networking is to me, and that's kind of all it should be in the beginning. Yeah, this is a little bit back to uh, to the to the applying again. Um, what do you think are some of the transferable skills that academics possess that they should put in their resume or CV um, that maybe they do- are not doing as much? Yeah, so the transferable skills are definitely going to depend on what career you're applying for. So that's also why I recommend that people really focus in on one target career and then talk to people in that career and basically ask them this question, like, what what are the biggest skills used on your job? So for me, like as a UX researcher, um, a lot of what I do is qualitative research. So interviews, observations, and so just having those research skills, not so much quantitative research, but the fact that I do have a background in statistics and I can run statistics in R has been a big advantage in every single role that I've had because most people on my team, because everyone on my team has been a qual person. Um, and then above and beyond that, communication skills, so public speaking, writing abilities. Um, those are those are the other two big things that I use all of the time, being able to work in teams. Um, but if you're looking at different kinds of careers, like if you're looking at more of a management position, then being able to manage people or manage projects would be a really big skill. If you're looking at careers that are more in instructional design, then all of those teaching skills, curriculum development, like those would be the big skills that you would be highlighting on a resume. And the one the one thing that I think all PhDs have, regardless of the field, and I mentioned this before, is just the ability to learn things really quickly. And so we we're really good at teaching ourselves how to do how to do things and just in new subject areas. And I and that's definitely something that people underestimate. Um and it's something that I highlight every time I go through an interview. It's like, you know, just give like give me a few months, like I'll figure it out. Like I don't believe there's anything I couldn't learn or teach myself or like ask questions about how to do. Um that and I think analytical skills and like critical thinking skills, especially if you're in research, like that's the other, that's the other big thing I, I think PhDs have really developed. Hmm. Okay. I'm curious because, so I think many academics actually struggle with communicating that uh, effectively in their resumes, uh, um, especially during the application process. Could you share some tips on how they could better do that? So what what should they, um, because they have experience managing their projects, but they probably don't say it like that. They just say like, I did research in X or research in Y. Yeah. Um, so how could they better go about communicating that? Uh, yeah, I see, I see this a lot. And I think, and this is the thing where people, they focus so much on what they've studied and not really anything about how they studied it. And so mm-hmm. instead of instead of saying on a resume, like, I I did, I ran a project, I like wrote a dissertation on like early childhood emotional development, where you're, you're really focused more on the subject area. Like, what skills did you use? So, you know, I, I tested a thousand participants using these methods. I analyzed like, I developed like 
data analysis tools using R that increase you know, the efficiency of my data analyses by this percentage. And so the big thing is thinking about how to quantify your skills. Um, so moving from just telling people that you have research skills to showing people what you've done. Um, and so that that's like the biggest thing that I recommend people doing is just like shifting focus in those ways. Um, I think it's hard when the impact of your work in academia is very impact, very different than the impact of your research in industry. And so impact, when you think about impact in academia, you think of, well, how many papers did I publish? Like how many citations did I have? Um, and that's how, that's how you're measuring impact. But then outside of academia, how I'm measuring impact is like, okay, I did this research and then what were the results and how did that impact like business decisions ultimately? Like, was a new product created like how much revenue did this product bring in and things like that so it's that's also like a hard switch into thinking about like what was the impact of your work a good way to do a bullet point um is thinking about like you accomplished x by doing y as measured by z so being able to really think about the measurement piece is it's a hard thing for academics to do okay interesting um, now, our audience consists for a large part of, out of PhD students, mm-hmm. uh, and we have come across some people um, who say that their PhDs don't lend well for finding uh, a non-academic job, and that that means they're kind of stuck in academia and are now doing a postdoc. Um, do you think that's a ca- that's the case, that there are PhD programs that box you into staying into academia, or is there something that they can do to improve the situation? I mean, I think this goes back to what I was saying, where if if you're if you're defining being stuck in academia as like I cannot study this thing anywhere outside of academia, then then yes, like you're stuck in academia because you can't study that somewhere else. But I know like I know people with history PhDs who you know, are working at Amazon right now and working in tech and doing UX research. Like it's you can you can take the skills that you have and the research skills that you have and apply them to a different area. Um, I think it is it is like a little harder for people who are not in a STEM field to make that transition. Um, but it's not it's not impossible. And I also know like a lot of humanities PhDs who are in instructional design, for example, who are really working on, you know, how do how do we develop programs like educational programs that are more effective? So any anyone who goes through a PhD program has teaching experience for the most part. So. That's definitely a transferable skill. So I wouldn't say that anyone is like stuck in academia. And also at the end of the day, there just are not enough academic jobs for every PhD. So there's just, I I, I would like advise, advise against this thinking that there's nowhere else to go. You just have to be more creative about your experiences. And also what I guess uh, you're willing to to do in that sense, like if you're if you're willing to switch your research a little bit and do a slightly mm-hmm. different job, then no. Yeah, but. yeah, um, no, for sure. And mm-hmm. I think I think it's also hard to know what you'll like until you try it, because if you were to tell me as a PhD student that I would have been working at Meta <laughs> developing like augmented reality tools, I would have been like, you're out of your mind. Like there's I never want to work there. Like i couldn't possibly be interested in doing that kind of research at all and then it was so interesting when I was actually doing it so I would also just unless you actually have evidence that you don't like doing a thing I would just caution against any any belief that you would 
couldn't possibly see yourself doing that particular thing and enjoying it. Okay. Now, I think a lot of PhD students only really start looking or thinking about getting a job, uh, a non-academic job in the last stage, in the last Mm -hmm. years, last months of their PhD, and probably feel it's a little bit too late and they probably might have, should have started sooner. Um, What would you advise PhD students today who don't know if they will actually want to stay in academia and do a postdoc to improve their chances of finding a non-academic job? Yeah, so if you still have time left on your PhD, the biggest thing that will help you is doing an internship in whatever field that you're interested in. So I I know people who they did an internship in graduate school and then they were offered a full-time role like when they graduated. And so the internship gives you the thing that will help you the most in your job search, which is actual experience doing a particular job. And it'll also allow you to see if you like doing the job because that's the only way that you'll actually know um, is if mm. you're doing it. So if you still have time, internships, um, and if, and regardless of what stage you're at, uh, get on LinkedIn is my <laughs> biggest piece of advice, because I also did not do that until my last year of grad school. Um, so yeah, get on LinkedIn. And I mean, people are welcome to connect with me and follow me. And there are a lot of other PhDs in this space. I know all, I know all of them um, who are creating content uh, specifically targeted towards helping PhDs transition out of academic research. So, so following, engaging in content, starting to connect with other people and talking to other people about, you know, what jobs do you have and just really starting building building your network is the thing that I would recommend people do, regardless of what career stage they're at. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you think so? You're not the first person to bring up the internships during the the PhD on this podcast. Um, so at least in the Netherlands, I, I I think both me and Suzanne find it hard to sort of um, be, because our PhDs are full time jobs effectively. Yeah, we mm-hmm. also get paid as if it is a full time job. So oh, it's nice. kind of, yeah, that is very, very <laughs> nice. <laughs> but that does make it a lot harder to just say, oh, yeah, I'm going to be gone for three months because you basically yeah. have a, your PI is your boss who pays you to do this research. So, yeah. So then coming back to it, it's just like, um, do you think like with an internship? So let's say, if, I don't know, like you you do uh, research, the, the type of research that you did during your, your PhD. And you wanted to suddenly switch more and more into, well, tech, for example. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's easier to get like an internship in uh, because you're a PG student and the, the, the potential employer or uh, in this uh, this case would be like, oh, you're a PG student. You clearly have some skills. Let's take you on as an intern. Or is it is it do you need already to have a background in, in tech then for them to take you on as an intern, you think? No, I, you definitely don't need a background in tech because I, I knew a lot of people in my program who they were, it was a lot of like so people in social psychology or cognitive psychology who were getting internships and none of them were in tech already because I think, I think, and I think companies understand that um, I, internships have gotten more competitive, but mm. again, it kind of all comes down to like networking and marketing yourself and all of these things. And you don't need an internship. Like there are ways that you can do, like you can volunteer, like you can freelance, you can do self-directed research projects. Like there are other ways where you can teach yourself how to do these things and then demonstrate that you understand how to do these things for employers. Um, And other ways that you can gain experience that aren't, you know, like doing, doing a full-time internship for like multiple months. I know, I know other people who have done 
have done like volunteering and freelancing to gain UX experience, for instance. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, well, last question already. Um, do you have any last all-purpose career advice for anybody who is still considering maybe leaving academia or maybe not? Do you have any advice yeah. for those people? <laughs> oh, wow. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I've given a lot of my advice. And I and I think, honestly, like I, I hear from people all the time where like it's not it's not like my like logistical advice that's helped them it's just like talking openly about the fact that I made this career transition and I don't hate my life now mm-hmm. and I think it's just it's really important for and it for I guess and maybe maybe this is my like plea to other like PhDs who have made this transition or people who are going to is just to share like experiences more more widely because there is a lot of misinformation out there about non-academic jobs and if you haven't if you're a PhD student and the only people who you're talking to are academics, like you don't really know what it's like to work outside of academia. Um, so, so I would just recommend, like, I guess my, I guess my big piece of advice is just get on LinkedIn. I was like, I was not on, I hated LinkedIn prior to like 10 months ago. And then once I got on it, I was like, LinkedIn's so great. It's <laughs> like such a boring statement for me to make, but I really like everyone's so nice and it's, it's actually really nice being on a social media platform where everyone is just really, really nice and friendly. Um, so there's a, we have like a really great community of people on there. And so maybe that, maybe that's my big, my big takeaway. It's get on LinkedIn. <laughs> okay. Well, nice. Um, well, thank you so much for talking with us today yeah. about this amazing topic. Uh, we loved having you on our podcast, of course. And if people would like to find you, how can they best do so? Yeah, uh, well, LinkedIn, obviously. <laughs> um, I'm still on the platform formerly known as Twitter, like somewhat actively, but not super actively. Um, and then at some point, whenever I have free time, I will probably, I, I have an Instagram. I'm not like super active on it right now, but I do, I do intend to be more active there at some point in the future. Um, but LinkedIn is probably the best place to get in contact with me because that's where I'm most active right now. And there they just can find you on your name, Ashley Gruba. Very easy, yep. right? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yes, thank you for being on our podcast. Um, for our listeners, if you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, you can reach out to us via our website, thestrugglingscientist.com. And you can also check out our website to sign up for our awesome Journal of the Struggling Scientist, also known as our newsletter. Um, and if you have enjoyed this episode, then leave us a rating on your favorite podcast listening platform as it helps us grow and reach more struggling scientists out there. You can also follow us on social media. Jaron, on which ones are we again? X, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. Yes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. Bye. Bye.